0: I just wanted someone who loved me unconditionally, but more than everybody else was, um, someone who's going to stay there and be there. This is the Foster Movement Podcast, helping you work with others to provide more than enough
1: for kids and families in foster care where you live. Here are your hosts, Jason Weber and Diego Buller.
2: Hey, this is Jason Weber. Welcome to the Foster Movement Podcast. I am here with the talented, charming, and handsome Diego Fuller. Yo,
3: what's up, Mr. Jason? How you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Diego? Man, I am, I'm doing pretty good. I can't yeah. complain, and I won't complain. All right. It awesome. It, it won't help nothing. Uh, <laughs> it just makes things worse, right?
2: <laughs> I have a question for you, Diego. Yes, sir. Um, so usually in a married couple... Uh, generally speaking, somebody is the paperwork person. They're the person that that fills out the paperwork. Okay. uh, I know who it is in my family. Right. And it ain't me. Um, (laughs) Who is it in your family? Who fills out all the paperwork?
3: I fill out all the paperwork. You fill out the paperwork. Doctor bills. I mean, doctor going to the doctor. I fill it out. Yeah. Everything. I fill out everything. My, My wife. Yeah. I fill out everything. (laughs) I'll
2: leave it alone because she'll listen and get on to me no 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 so she's probably like me like it just takes you know we're we're thoughtful folks and it just (laughs) it sometimes takes a little longer for
3: folks like us to get the paperwork done right well if if she's like you y'all both just think too long (laughs) so <laughs> I like I to like hurry up and get the process finished <laughs> yeah yeah. so it's just, just, I'm like babe just write it down it's, yeah so I, I kind of do all the paperwork you just get it done yeah yeah. yeah so, how, so your wife oh yeah she, like if we're in a place and there's paperwork and they're both there like
2: we might both work on it but right. she can get like four forms done to my one. oh wow you
3: know so oh She's good. So
2: it's almost like it's not even yeah. worth me trying, but I still try.
3: <laughs> I still try.
2: So yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about um, the process. Uh, we're a part. We're in the middle of a series about the foster journey, journey, talking about all the things that you got to consider when you're thinking about becoming a foster parent. Right. And today we're going to be talking about. Paperwork, And we're going to be talking about <laughs> training classes right. and all of the things, the steps you have to take in order to actually be certified mm-hmm. as a foster parent. We'll start off today by talking to a foster care alumni named Veronica Hanks, who has an amazing story. Then we will be joined by Jalen Smiley, uh, who has been a social worker for a long time, and she knows everything about the process, and she's going to walk us through that, and she is fantastic. So let's get started with our interview with Veronica Hanks. I'm here with Veronica Hanks in Asheville, North Carolina. Hello, Veronica.
0: Hi, how are you?
2: I'm great. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm
0: good, thank you. (laughs) Thanks so
2: much for being with us.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Veronica, uh, I know a little bit about your story. Can you tell us about your 14th birthday?
0: Um, so on my 14th birthday, really started the wild and radical journey that put us on that foster care journey. Um,
2: when you say us, how many of you were there?
0: In that home at the time, there were seven of us, um, but only two of us actually went into foster care. Um, seven kids? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, uh, me being the oldest, um, but it, it was... The day that I turned 14, unfortunately, that started all of it. So we, it, it was really the days prior that started all of it. We had some social workers come by and they had, you know, just did this surprise visits they like to do. They knew mom was not home. They knew boyfriend was not home. Um, they knew an underage child was watching children, watching two babies. Um, and,
2: um, no, was that you?
0: Yes, okay, yes. you were watching, um,
2: younger siblings, okay, yes. What would they have seen in the home? What kind of conditions would they have
0: um, come across? So, what she saw was a futon and a big, bulky TV that that did not work, no pictures hanging up. And she she did lean in to look at the kitchen, and she she did not see anything in that kitchen, nothing. Nothing from a table to food on the counters. Um, she just saw two kids in diapers running behind me and uh, four others running behind me, kids crying, and a disheveled 13-year-old girl <laughs> trying to keep it all together. So, And
2: um, you guys had a couple of mattresses for seven kids?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. So we had two twin mattresses for the seven of us she did not see that and I didn't mention that until much later when I was prived for the information (laughs) no shower no shower um we were not allowed to shower or you know have those amenities unless we asked to do so we ate when there was food but typically there was not food so on my 14th birthday back to that back to that question we um it was probably a little bit before noon. The whole house went black. We got an eviction notice on the door moments later, which we had a feeling was coming. Um, so we didn't have time to gather our things. We all went outside. Our brother had put us in a, into his car. My mom had put us into her car. And... Her and her boyfriend just sat there and complained about getting how they couldn't get their video game consoles, their TV, their bedding, their makeup, and my main worry was the um, the photo book albums that she once took time to make. Mm.
2: Um, how did that make you feel?
0: It was it was really disheartening, um, especially being at that age, because she was, and it was very clear to me that what she was spending her money on. Um, and it made me feel like I had to be the adult, which I knew I was being. My mom quickly goes in the house. She picks up some camping gear of my grandfather's. And we're still, we're all still in the car, but we can hear everything that's going on. But she comes back to us and she's looking at us and she's very tearful. And she's asking us, um, if we want to go camping this summer. And how does that sound? Well, we know that something's not right. Um and we're all just quiet. Um, everyone's trying to run after her and saying that, you know, we need to stay. So her and her boyfriend, um, we they peel out of the driveway anyways, um, and we go on that camping trip. <laughs> um, and it turns out that, um, you know, a, a couple of people that did really care about us did call DSS a couple times and that's why they knew of our living situation um, and those people that did really care about us you know we left those we left those people behind um, so during that camp those camping trips um, we slept as seven kids we slept seven to a small tent um, it was probably a two to four person tent so it wasn't too cramped but we had two babies that were still in diapers, and one that was trying to be potty trained. Um, and remind you know to remind everyone that we uh, we didn't have anything. We didn't take anything from our home. We didn't have any money. It was your typical on the run story: no money, no no food, um, no resources, no people to contact. Um,
2: and you guys are like living in the woods.
0: Living in the woods. Yep. Just uh, public camping grounds. I know each individual place that we went to, um, I can't pass them to this day. Um, I, I still have friends that go camping there, and I just can't go near them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we eventually got a call saying that DSS was going to press charges on her, and if she did not bring us back or bring us to a safe place, that she was no longer allowed to have us. And she figured that seven kids would be split up very fast, which we we typically know is true. Right. She called um, my ex-stepdad, and the five between me and the youngest, she brought them to him um, where they have stayed and been very successful and... Um, they are living their lives and doing great in school and things like that. And me and the youngest, we went to meet a social worker, and they decided on kinship placement. So we went from a neglectful and abusive home to a aunt who was on drugs and uh, was unsafe and just could not provide for us. So we didn't stay there long. We went to a family friend that I probably hadn't seen since I was 10, and Nicholas, my brother, he had not ever met, so he was he was very nervous.
2: Was your brother I amused mean, too? So mm-hmm. he probably didn't understand a lot. Did you mm-hmm. find yourself trying to explain things to him?
0: Um, not really. Um, what he had a hard time with was the mom and dad role, and because he knew he had to call someone, mom and dad, and we. I can't recall if we actually had visits with our mom at the time. And, but he knew he had to call someone, mom and dad. And I think, I I know I tried to help him through that, but his main thing was we were just, he was constantly crying and he wasn't sleeping. Um, And that was the first time in 14 years I had slept alone and he was not sleeping with me. Um,
2: So... mm -hmm. um was that scary for you?
0: It was. It was terrifying. Um, he, it, it wasn't a bad thing, and and I know that they were doing right by us, and in their eyes, they were allowing me to be more like a child and um, trying to take that burden off my back. But it was, it was really hindering me because I I needed him and I needed. I needed some familiarity in, in that time. Um, so I didn't have an actual bed. It was a pull-out chair, but it, it was more than I'd had before. And I had sheets and I had blankets. So I was grateful that I had that. So I couldn't complain too much. And that's what I kept telling myself. Um, but the, the pet rabbits, they, were, they would slip on the floor. Um, but they were still in the room. The smell was still in the room. Um, eventually, my guardian at litem got that, that issue handled. Because um, she was not happy about it. Um, she was very, uh, she was, yeah, she was very fearful.
2: Can you explain to our audience who might not be familiar with the term what a guardian ad litem does?
0: Yeah. So a guardian ad litem, they are appointed, a, um, a court appointed person that helps a child who's going through a, a court case that may result in. Them being in a different placement than they were in before. It could be a foster care case or um, a div- you know a divorce case. It, it really just any time a child's involved in a court case, they're going to be present.
2: And yours actually came and spent time with you.
0: Yes, she did. Yeah, she was there from the very beginning. Um, as soon as we entered kinship placement with my aunt, and she. The first time she asked me, how's it going? I said, it's it's not the right, we need to leave. You know, it's not the right fit. And I told her what was happening and she got us out as soon as we were put in.
2: So you were eventually adopted at 17, but prior to being adopted, you had another family who um, was planning on adopting you and that fell through. What was that like?
0: That was really hard because I... Was the one who had made the decision to go with that family and choose that family, and I thought I was making the right decision. Nicholas actually moved in with them, and um, and he moved in with them so I could finish my junior year of high school, or just that semester. Um, it was the the fall semester of my junior year, so. Um, the goal was for him to go start our 90 days um, because you do have a 90-day trial period um, before that it's finalized. So we had spent time with his family. They would come visit us. We'd go visit them. Now it's time for me to go. I move all my stuff over there. It's Christmas. We have it with them. We're about to start school there now. And we're almost to that 90-day period. We're almost there. And that's when... An altercation happens, um, and I just, I, I see who they really are, and um, they're really not in it for the right reasons, or at least not not both parents are.
2: What did you see that, as a 16-year-old, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that you were able to perceive? What, what, what did you see there?
0: They would tell my brother that if he was acting up, they were going to send him back. Hmm. Um, that's not something you should ever tell a child, hmm. um, in my eyes. And, and that's just something that, that's did it in for me. Um, and just the way they interacted with him, um, I just didn't think was the right thing, right, the right fit for us. So I called my social worker, I called my foster mom, um, and I just told him that this isn't the right fit. We're not going to stay here. We need to come home. I actually lock ourselves you know, lock ourselves in my room, and I ask him, you know, what what does he want to do? And he's saying that he wants to go home and that he's he's wanted to go home. Mm. Um, so that was hard to hear too that I had made that decision for him. So
2: he wanted to go home, being back to
0: our foster parents,
2: your foster parents. Yes, you know.
0: yeah. He never um, actually wanted. He never referred um, our biological mom as mom, or he never knew what to call her when we would visit her, and he never referred that place as home. So he's always known um, before our home now and our parents. He never knew anything other than our foster parents and home. He always referred to them as mom and dad and home. So,
2: What's remarkable about your story is that <clears throat> there's this combination of you obviously are a person who knew that you had a voice and were willing to use it. Um, you also had, thankfully, people around you a social worker and a guardian ad litem who um, recognized that voice and listened to it. And I know that there are a lot of kids who've gone through foster care who. Don't feel like that. Mm -hmm. Don't feel like they had a voice. Don't feel like they could say something and somebody would listen and act. And it sounded like, it sounds like you had that over and over again.
0: Yes. Um, I definitely think that if I didn't have my brother, that voice may have been suppressed a little bit. Um, By
2: you or by others?
0: um, Probably by others and myself. Um, I'm definitely not a extrovert by any means. But I, I think that I, I had someone to fight for and I was not willing to let him go <laughs> um, but I, but deep down I knew what was best for us and I wanted to I wanted to stay with him I, I knew that we needed to be together um, but ultimately when that fell through and when that you know that area's DSS did not come through and did not come check on us like they were supposed to, my foster mom just finally said that hey I'm, I'm coming to get you guys she drove that you know that five hour drive and came to get us we went home and we made that decision to be adopted separately which was so hard mm-hmm. um, after all that fighting that I had done it just felt like I would lost everything again so um, we had well my foster parents had made a plan for us before you know um, just in case something like this had happened because I knew it would be hard for someone my age to be adopted, and we actually had ran into a family before we chose this family that had told me, "We only want Nicholas, but we're going to we know that you're a package, so when you get here, we're not going to really support you, but we know that we have to in order to get Nicholas, we have to have you as well.
2: That was the first family
0: That was one of the three families that we were picking. Got it um. So um, so we know that it was just going to be really hard. So the goal for me was to continue to live with my foster parents until I aged out. And then after that, I would continue to live with them until I was 21 um, with, and uh, hopefully apply for the CARS agreement and some other things that applied to me. And then Nick would be um, uh, adopted by this family that was already interested in him from before so, they were kind of getting everything together, and I had already closed off everything. I was angry. I had distanced myself from everyone, and which wasn't very different from what I was like before, um, <laughs> but it was, it was just a little bit extra, but that's when I met Amy. I was wearing a Duke sweatshirt, and my foster mom had called me over to the front door, and she said, "The you know this is this is Amy," and I said, "Okay," and and she said that, <laughs> and you know you're. I'm you're, sure you
2: can all imagine exactly <laughs> the the face that a teenager might have exactly. when they say, "And yeah, we get that." So, Got it. Um,
0: so Amy's <clears> you know complimenting my Duke sweatshirt and telling me that she <clears throat> goes to Duke basketball games herself and. I'm just rolling my eyes, saying, "Okay, cool. You know, thanks for the compliment." And I walk back into the t- um, the TV room and continue watching uh, the Duke basketball game. But she had just dropped off my brother uh, from a play date with her son. But later, Amelia had come to me and said that Amy would like to take me to a Duke basketball game, and she would really like to be a mentor to me. And that just makes me really mad because the last thing I thought I needed was a mentor. Mm. So I'm rolling my eyes. I'm getting mad. My, my face is hot. <laughs> Why
2: didn't you think you needed a mentor? Well, Why I, did that bother you?
0: I felt like everyone was already a mentor, <clears throat> and I already had this big village behind me, and it wasn't helping me. Um, I was aging out. I was becoming one of the statistics, and I needed a family. I wanted a forever family. You had and a pile
2: I, of people that were all... In your life already, exactly,
0: right? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I just wanted someone who loved me unconditionally, but more than everybody else was. Um, someone who's going to stay there and be there. So we get to, you know, we're talking, and it seems like we talked about everything. Um, on the way there, we get to the game. They play Maryland. They win. Um, and it was the best game that I had ever been to in... I still have the tickets, um, and that was in 2013. So mm. we end up driving back, and that's when she tells me that she is, you know, her and her husband and their family has decided to adopt me and Nicholas. And um, I'm crying, and I'm mad that Together, I— Together, both of you. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, so—
2: You, you Wait, you're crying— Yes. And you're mad.
0: Yes, I'm mad because I was... Tell me about that. <laughs> well, I was mad because I got so upset that I didn't even want to go with her. Um, and I was like, I, I could have missed out on this. Mm. Um, and uh, it was just, it was a lot of emotions. Um, and I just couldn't believe that someone wanted us again. And someone truly wanted us. And um, this person that I, I blew off... Um, not once but twice almost, um, still wanted us and still wanted to love us unconditionally. Um,
2: What does it feel like to be pursued like that?
0: Incredible. Um, It's just that unconditional love um, that we're, you know, that they always talk about that. I don't know, they talk about it in church with God. um, And it just, it felt like that, that I had not felt in a really long time. You know, I I finally get back home, and I'm I'm joking with Amelia, and I was like, how could you not tell me? And um, the next morning, uh, I hear a radio commercial, and it's of uh, my dad's company, and I was like, that's him. That's going to be my dad. And uh, (laughs) she said, yes, yes, but don't say it so loud, (laughs) Um, because I was the only person that had known, because we were waiting to tell my brother. Um, And he
2: was how old at this time?
0: um, He was was probably four, almost five. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was over the moon. Um, And I don't know. Like I said, just so many mixed emotions. And over the course of many months, it seemed like we had met various people in the family. They came to my junior year prom after I got ready to see me. So that's the first time I met my dad, and it was just a really super special day. We just kind of, you know, just kind of kept that ball rolling, and we finally moved in with them that summer of 2013, right before my uh, senior year of high school, and that, you know, it, it was just really crazy to think that that, if we hadn't moved back, and if my brother hadn't we went back to that preschool where their son was. We wouldn't be where we are today.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Do you still find birthdays hard?
0: Um, I did for a long time because um, it seemed like something bad always happened. But as the as I've gotten older, the past few time, the past few birthdays, I've grown really content with them and just really content with nothing happening. And I'd, I'd prefer it that way because nothing, nothing bad happened and I was okay with that. Hmm. And that meant it was a good day. So if that makes any sense at all, um, it, was, it was a victory in my eyes.
2: So Veronica, I am a graduate of the University of Kansas, and what I hear you telling me is that good things can happen at a Duke basketball game, which oh, yes. I'm really <laughs> not sure about. But
0: uh, <laughs> great things can happen.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I so appreciate you your willingness to open up and share about your story. Um, your amazing advocacy for your brother is inspiring. And uh, and I know for a fact that you have been turning that same voice, that same passion, and that same heart of an advocate um, into uh, advocacy for others, the kids that are still in the system. And uh, you are speaking to um, folks that are um, guardian ad litems, and you are inspiring others to make a difference for kids. So, um Thank you for all you're doing and thank you for uh, your willingness to share your experience to inspire others to do better.
0: Thank you for having me and allowing me to do this and and be part of all that you guys are doing because it takes a village. So thank you for being part of someone's village. Amen.
2: Wow, I was just so blown away by Veronica's story. The amazing tenacity and fight that she had mm-hmm. to speak up for the best interests of her little brother. And then the fact that her guardian ad litem and social worker listened to her voice, that's so important, so important for every kid in foster care Mm -hmm. to be able to have that voice and to have somebody listen to them.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, we uh, are definitely going to get to our interview with Jalen Smiley uh, to talk through the process of becoming a foster parent and Mm -hmm. the things that are involved with that, the home study, the background check, and the paperwork, (laughs) all of that. But before we get there, uh, we want to make sure that you know about uh, the more than enough effort. Yes. Many organizations, many churches around the country yes. working together. We want to see 10% of churches in every county in the country actively engaged in foster care yep. by 2025. Yes. Now you may hear us say that and say, okay, what do you mean by actively engaged? What does that mean? Well, we have a way for you to find out. Yeah. Um, exactly where your church is in this process and right. whether your church is a church that is currently actively engaged or may be there someday. Right. There is, uh, we have a More Than Enough Church Foster Care Assessment, and you can take that assessment. It's free. Uh, it just takes about 10 or 15 minutes. If you go to morethanenoughtogether.org, that's morethanenoughtogether.org, and you look for the Church Foster Care Assessment and what that does is it, it allows you to answer questions and evaluates your church's engagement in foster care in six different areas. And you'll get like a 10, 12-page report that'll give you ideas, ways to move forward, next mm-hmm. steps. And what I love about it is it not only just gives you a really accurate idea of how your church is doing related to foster care engagement, but it gives you really practical next steps and a way forward. Right. So right. uh, be sure to check that out. Be sure to, when yes, you're there and you're, and you're registering to take that church assessment, sign the more than enough de- declaration. Join us in saying yes. that we believe it's possible. You'll do your part and we'll do it together. Amen. And we'll get this done. Great. All right, yes, sir. All right. Well, with that, let's not wait any longer to get to our great interview with Jalen Smiley and talk about The process. The process. <laughs> I'm here with Jalen Smiley, who has been working in the foster care world for a number of years, and we are so delighted to have you with us. Thanks for joining us, Jalen.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: Now, over the last 26 years, you've been involved in recruiting a lot of families, in training a lot of families, and walking with a lot of families through the process, correct? Correct.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've worked with a state organization as well as several private um, organizations. And all of that was around recruitment and the initial training um, for foster and adoptive families who are adopting children through their state.
2: You know, we've been going through the foster journey on this podcast for a few episodes and will continue to do so. And we have some very specific questions for you about the process related to paperwork and home studies and training. And so the first question that I have for you is, Jalen, why in the world is there so much Paperwork?
1: <laughs> well, mainly because you're dealing with a state entity, you know, most of the time, um, and you're placing the agencies are placing children out of the state's custody. Um, you're dealing with either human and health services or child protective services. And the children are in foster care, unfortunately, because of abuse and or um, neglect. And so the state is trying to uh, keep that from happening again. Um, While they are in care, the state wants to be able to know that the family is um, equipped and ready even, prepared for parenting our children uh, because they've had some really difficult things happen to them, in front of them, um, in their lives. And although it is parenting, it's going to be different from raising uh, your own children because our I still call them my babies. Our kiddos have seen so much um, prior to coming into care. They didn't come into care because of behaviors at school. It all had to do with adults making decisions that were unsafe for our children. And so the states need to get to know Um, the families that are fostering. Think about it this way. Um, If something were to happen to you, you were given a diagnosis um, and you knew that you needed to make a plan for your children, uh, for someone else uh, to raise them, Um, and you didn't have friends or family, or maybe you do and they're unable to raise your children, you have to look outside at a total stranger Think about those questions and um, answers that you want to receive in order to feel comfortable about having that particular family raise your children. That's what we're doing in this process.
2: That's actually a really helpful illustration. So if you have a family that comes to you in the process and they say, "Jalen, this paperwork is killing us. Uh, what practical advice would you have for someone on how to approach the paperwork, how to handle it so that it doesn't become an obstacle to actually becoming certified?
1: That's a really good question. Um, And, there are several answers actually. Um, so, depending on the child placing agency that a foster family or an adopted family would go through, I would ask those questions up front around paperwork and what their process is. I've noticed and seen uh, some agencies only provide a little bit of paperwork at a time because there is so much, and then others here's all 100 pages of what you need to fill out. So if you are planning to move forward, I would first find your driver's license, social security card, not just the number, but the card, marriage licenses, birth certificates, divorce decrees, and death certificates, because those are the things that a lot of people know where they are, but then when you go to get them, they're not there. Um, But then also, Just if it's an agency that provides all of your paperwork, um, the last few agencies I've worked for, that's what we've done, provided everything so families would have access. Take it in chunks. If that means, you know, if it's 100 items, then just take the first five and tackle those or find out which ones are going to take the longest to come back, you know, going to the doctor, setting that appointment. Um, How does the doctor's office complete the paperwork? Um, Go on a date night (laughs) and take some of the paperwork with you. And as you're talking about uh, children that you're interested in, ages that you're interested in, that's part of the paperwork. Fill it out then. Um, I would also contact references, people that you know are going to speak on your behalf for this process, Call them now, talk to them now, because they also have a part to play in the paperwork. And sometimes that um, adds to the delay of being licensed because you're waiting on your references to submit their uh, paperwork. But it is gonna be a lot because we want to represent you well as an agency representative. um, We are speaking to CPS on your behalf. And when they tell us that there are children that need to be placed I want to be able to say, yes, this is the best match for this child or this sibling group. Exactly.
2: Well, and I would also like our listeners to note, you know, y'all can never say that we did not offer romance advice on this podcast because going out on a date and having dinner and doing paperwork, now that is solid.
1: Well, it just makes sense. You're creating conversation, but we're also encouraging you to live your life.
2: That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the home study. Now, the home study scares a lot of people, right? Uh, we have this image in our head of somebody in white gloves that's going to be walking around uh, checking for dust and all of these different things. But let's really boil down what a home study is and what kinds of questions are they going to be asking us?
1: Well, an, a home study actually is an interview, big job interview, I guess. I've heard someone say that um, before. Um we're writing a book about your family. So there are interviews with, if you're married, there are interviews with you as a couple together and then interviews with you separately. And we are talking to you, sharing with you um, the history that a lot of our children have, uh, what they've seen and are comparing that with uh, what do you see your family like in a few years? Um, How do you handle concerns and problems in your family with the children um, at school? Uh, How did your parents raise you? Uh, Did that have an effect on how you're currently raising um, your children? Um, If you're married again, is your relationship solid? Not just by saying that, but that's why we also have the separate interviews. Because our children have seen so much in the past, this is an emotional, emotional roller coaster for them and also for you. But they've suffered a lot of loss, a lot of trauma. And if that couple um, is not on the same page um, in regards to their marriage and the strength of the marriage, this can take a toll. Um, in the 26 years um, I've seen a couple struggle. Which is why I tell families in this process, if I come to you or our team comes to you and says, we need you to take a little time before you move forward, it's not that we're discouraging you from doing that. We've just seen some things um, that you've said or that you've shared that concern us, and we know that it will become A mountain. It might be very small right now, but it will become a mountain somewhere in this process. Um, If you have not grieved well from a loss that you've suffered, our children have seen a lot of loss. So there are very specific questions around your relationship. Um, If you're single, even more so, who are your support uh, people? how are they going to support you by just a phone call or are they in your home regularly? Are they in this child's life regularly? Are you dating? What does your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you know, think about this? Are you planning to get married? They are very specific, uh, very intrusive (laughs) questions. But again, we're wanting to get to know you as a family. So when CPS alerts us of children, they need to place, I can feel confident to say Jason's going to be great at this. This is what their home looks like. Um, But it also there's a fun side. There are pictures. Um, Families often take photos of the neighborhood, the school, um, church, uh, the Bible study group, because they want that CPS worker to see what type of home um, this child or this sibling group will be uh, placed in. So uh, yes, it is a very personal um, part of the process, uh, but I, I really want to get to know the families that are going to foster or adopt. Let me
2: clarify something you said. You mentioned the questions that are going to be asked about your marriage, um, but you're not looking for a conflict-free marriage in order to certify a family, correct?
1: We are never looking for perfect people um, because that concerns us, (laughs) frankly. uh, When we see that, because we know that something is happening in everybody's home, in everybody's life, we all have histories that we're not proud of necessarily, but we've become better people. Um, This allows that child to have and be able to um, express, although it may not be verbally, it might come through behavior or it might come through uh, crying or different things that they've seen. Um, You've had a loss. You've grieved that loss so you can help this child through this loss. Um, You had crazy teenage history and you're, fostering a crazy teenager, because that's what they are. (laughs) Um, You can share with them what that looks like and that this time uh, that God has them in right now is not forever, but also providing life lessons um, to them. Um, It does make us a little nervous. I've talked to my cohorts, and even with other (laughs) agencies, when someone says, we have no support, but we've done really well with our kids. Um, We're going to be fine. Um, We have white carpet. We have white couches. That makes us nervous because is the child going to be allowed to be a child? There will be spills. (laughs) There will be accidents uh, that happen. Um, There will be rolling of eyes, lots of things that kids just do. Um, and will they be allowed? And feel free you know, to do that because they certainly have not been able to do that prior to coming into your home. So never looking for perfect perfection. Uh, we're not perfect, um, but certainly something that can contribute to the parenting and guidance of this child um, while they're in your home.
2: One of the common perceptions that people have about a home study is that somebody's going to come over to your house. They're going to be looking under your beds for dust bunnies. They're going to send off uh, tile from your bathroom to the lab to test for bacteria. Um, We've had families who will spend a couple of weeks scrubbing their entire house and then the worker comes over and they're almost disappointed that the worker didn't seem like they could care less about the cleanliness of their baseboards. Uh, Talk a little bit about that.
1: We do not own any white gloves, uh, so please don't think it has to, again, perfect, there's that word, perfection. We're not looking uh, for that because it needs to be a home where kids can be free and have, uh, have some comfort around that and some freedom and can play and can laugh, and uh, there will be goldfish on the floor, uh, but you know, just make sure that when we come back two weeks later <laughs> that the same goldfish aren't in the same spot on the floor, uh, but- seriously, it is not, um, you don't have to hire a cleaning service before we come. We are looking for um, space for the children to sleep and have toys and have their uh, books. And ultimately
2: you're not treating this like some sort of pass fail sort of scenario, right? You are trying to help a family prepare to have a child in their home. And so you want them to succeed. You want to provide some feedback. And so if you don't have everything exactly right, the first time the worker comes over.
1: No, not at all. And I think, um, sometimes families have taken it that way, but we prepare you and your home so that when the licensing division of the state agencies come out, there isn't a problem, or you don't want to be um, written up or closed, you know, because of some safety issue that the agency. Um, you know, would have shared, uh, with you. I have had a few families that live in like rural areas have to, they had to make some major adjustments, but again, it's really the yellow light out of the three, not a red one. Um, just caution, put these things in place so that you can pass the inspection or if you didn't pass the, um, home inspection, because some states utilize county officials to do that, Uh, they still give you time to come back and correct um, whatever that is.
2: You know, one of the other benefits of training that we've seen over the years is, you know, training isn't designed to give you all the answers, right? But it does provide a place where you can learn where to find the answers when you get to a point when you need them. You know, it's kind of like premarital counseling, right? We go through premarital counseling... And we kind of think, yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. But then you get into your fourth or fifth month of marriage and you realize, man, maybe I should have listened a little (laughs) bit more. But then at least you have the resources and the places to go to get the answers you need, right?
1: Absolutely. That's a good way to put that, Jason, because, um, and like you said earlier, a lot of people think, well, I already have three children. They're in college. They're doing well. There's a doctor. There's an attorney. Um, But this parenting looks different. And if we can provide any insight um, at all for families to consider, because the other thing about training is that it's an interview process for both sides, for you and the agency and us, for you, um, because so many people have this um, idea about foster care, adoption, children in foster care, and what that looks like because of what they've seen um, in the media. Um, So training gives you a lot of insight. It will never answer what if, what if, what if, what if. But it certainly, especially if you're connected with an agency Um, that has that experience, has longevity, even if the agency is new, but they have staff that has longevity, that's important because those individuals have been able to gather and see and partner with families and work with children to see what the needs are on both sides for kids, but also for families. And we can be able to address that In that in the training, because training doesn't end at licensing. Actually, once you're licensed um, with most states, you are required to take ongoing training to keep the information fresh and in front of you.
2: Now, when we talk about that initial training prior to certification, we're talking about maybe 35 or up to 40 hours of training, but I'm really glad you brought up the training that happens after certification as well, but that can take a lot of different forms, correct?
1: Absolutely. Yes, yes. Now, that is where most states have a little bit more flexibility. And you can take some of your training online. There are several uh, colleges and universities that have uh, programs around issues that uh, foster parents are dealing with, kids are dealing with medication. Um, And so the ongoing training is usually around 30 hours. That's still about the same
2: Jalen, for somebody who is at the very beginning of this whole journey, and they're looking at the process and they're a little intimidated by it, do you have any final words of advice for them?
1: Yes, I would actually start out with um, social media. I there are a lot of foster parent associations and adopted parent groups for families who are adopting through foster care um, that have Instagram pages, Facebook pages, and oftentimes you just provide a little information and uh, they will accept your request to join the group. They're usually closed groups just because they want to have at least somewhat of a safe place to ask questions and um, that sort of thing. But many of them are okay with a family that's brand new, still thinking about it, Um, hopping on. I see that all the time. And I think that is at least a good place to start. But when, (laughs) once you connect with um, agencies in your state, some states have lots of agencies and some only have the state agency that licenses families. When you connect with that agency, ask them about families that you can tap into and that maybe can become a mentor or a buddy to you. Um, and find out if there are meet and greet so you can begin to build your network of support. You need people holding your hand. You need people standing in the gap for you, certainly uh, praying for you before, during, and after. Um, So try to connect with other families that are walking this road um, with you and those who have gone um, before you. Because um, that is going to be key, especially as you wait, wherever that wait is, or especially if decisions are made that you don't agree with, you're going to need to have somebody holding your hand. And, and so that's where I'd start at least, uh, but then definitely narrow it down to your particular area, city, county, um, and, and find out who you can um, tap into.
2: That's great advice. You know, one of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind when we think about all of this, when we think about this process, is that at the end of the process is a person. And if we keep that in mind, it makes the process a lot easier when we realize that we are doing all of this to get to the end, to the person that god has put in front of us to help yes and so jaylen we're just so grateful for you for all the work you do to help people get into the process and get through the process and get to that place where they're making a difference in the life of a person and a family thanks so much for all you do
1: absolutely
3: jason i tell you what
2: What's that, Diego? Miss
3: Smiley, she knows the process.
2: Miss Smiley does know the process. She
3: knows the process. She
2: is amazing. Oh, man. You know, she walks a lot of families uh, through the process. She has helped a lot of families in in our church. Right, uh, right. She really does a great job of helping folks navigate uh, the realities of that.
3: Yes. Amazing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, uh, as we talked about at the end of that interview, um, at the end of the process— Uh, is a person Mm -hmm. and uh, I heard that from uh, somebody that I worked with a long time ago right and um, and and I've always never forgotten that yeah and uh, it's so important Um, the end of the process is a person It's a person Well, we just want to thank you for joining us. And we want to thank our guests, Veronica Hanks and Jalen Smiley for joining us. Thank you, guys. And we're grateful to you for all the things uh, that you do. If you're interested in learning more about the foster journey, uh, about the questions you should be asking yourself, about the process, uh, we have a resource for that purpose. It's called The Foster Journey, and you can get it at... CAFO.org slash foster movement that's CAFO.org slash foster movement you can get that in a Kindle version or you can get print copies in ministry packs for those of you and I know there's a lot of you out there uh, who are listening who just help a lot of other people through the process just like Mm -hmm. Jalen does and so this is a great resource to help uh, help them do that so check that out and if you want to uh, get today's show notes you can go to fostermovementpodcast.org And look us up on Facebook. We love to hear from you there uh, at the Foster Movement Podcast page on Facebook. Thanks again for joining us. We're so grateful for what you do, and we're here to help you do that until there's more than enough.
0: This has been the Foster Movement Podcast. Join Jason Weber and Diego Fuller next time as they and their guests help you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live.
3: Hey, this is Jason and Diego again. Yes, and we're still here because there's a couple of things that we want you guys to know.
2: That's right. First of all, be sure to download the free PDF we created, especially for listeners of this podcast.
3: It's called Key Things Former Foster Youth Want You to Understand About Caring for Current Foster Youth. This thing is beautiful and full of wisdom and insight from those who've been there. And I'm telling you, you need to print these babies out and give them to foster parents and applicants you work with because these things are amazing.
2: Just go to morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download. That's morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download.
3: Also, as you know, the Foster Movement Podcast is a limited series of just 18 episodes. But listen, it's okay. Don't be sad. Here's why. Because there's more where that came from. Tell them, Jay.
2: That's right. More Than Enough has produced a whole family of podcasts, one of which is called the More Than Enough Podcast.
3: So to learn more, go to morethanenoughtogether.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the homepage, and they are all there.
2: Hey, and one last thing. Thank you for listening. It's a privilege to be a part of your journey. Our team is here to help you work with others in your community to provide for children and families before, during, and beyond foster care until there's more than enough.